Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, Professor of Law and Director of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. You're listening to Measure Justice. This episode will consider recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions that have drastically expanded the jurisdiction of Native American tribes to prosecute and punish crimes, just as federal and state jurisdictions do each and every day. Our panelists for today's event will be introduced by my co-host, Melina Beatty, Professor of Law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. She is also Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice, a criminal justice center here at ASU that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices with the public. Valina. Thank you, Eric. Uh, as you just mentioned, today's podcast will focus on the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in McGirt versus Oklahoma and its impact on criminal justice in Native American tribal courts. Uh, We'll hear from three leading experts to get their take on the background, the reasoning, and the ultimate effect of McGirt, as well as other cases. Uh, So we're fortunate to be joined today by Addie Rolnick, the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She's also the director of UNLV's Indian Nations Gaming and Governance Program and UNLV's Program on Race, Gender, and Policing. Thank you, Addie. And next, we are joined by Bob Miller, Professor of Law and Distinguished Research Scholar at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Uh, He is also the Director of the Rosette LLP American Indian Economic Development Program. Great to have you here, Bob. Uh, And last but not least, we have Chrissy Nemo, the Deputy Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation, who has been heavily involved in litigation concerning the legal jurisdiction of Native American tribes. Uh, Welcome to you all. Professor Miller, if we can begin with you. Uh, In July 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its groundbreaking opinion in McGirt versus Oklahoma. Could you provide us some background on the McGirt decision to set the stage for our discussion today? Uh, And, you know, what the Supreme Court held in McGirt and why? Certainly. Thank you very much for having me on the program. On July the 9th, 2020, the Supreme Court decided what I have called a bombshell, uh, McGirt v. Oklahoma, as you already mentioned. The case raised the issue about the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma and whether its reservation from 1866 still is in existence. Most people, I think even it's fair to say the tribes themselves, assume that many of their reservations, if not all in Oklahoma, had somehow disappeared. But in an opinion written by Justice Gorsuch, in which he joined the four liberals we could call of the court, The court applied an old test that has been around for decades now on when to determine that a reservation has been diminished in size 
shrunk a bit or completely disestablished. I and my co-author have estimated that before McGirt, the Muscogee Creek Nation and its people possessed about 135,000 acres of land that we all assumed was Indian country. Indian country is a term of art, a, a statute that Congress enacted in 1948. It's at US, 18 USC 1151 and determines what is Indian country. And this definition is extremely irrelevant. But I guess I got ahead of myself a little bit, but to go back to McGirt, the decision was, did the Muscogee Creek Reservation as defined in its 1866 treaty with the United States, does it still exist? And the Supreme Court applying tests, the Supreme Court tests said Congress had never diminished nor disestablished the Creek Reservation. And so instead of having just 135,000 acres of land under Indian country, we woke up on July the 9th to find out that the Muscogee Creek Reservation is now three million, three and a quarter million acres. And in now this, this past year, state court cases in Oklahoma had used the precedent of McGirt and have now found, I believe, at least six other tribes' reservations still exist. And in fact, my tribe's reservation from 1888 will probably be determined to still exist. And now almost 43% of Oklahoma is Indian country. And that implicates the discussion today about what looks like a pretty massive expansion of criminal, tribal and federal criminal jurisdiction. Professor Miller, I heard you mention uh, your co-author. Am I right that you have a book forthcoming on the McGirt decision? Well, I've written an article with one co-author. And yes, we are pub another co-author of mine, a professor from Mississippi, uh, we have submitted a book to the University of Oklahoma Press about McGirt just a couple weeks ago. Wonderful. Hopefully our, our readers can uh, find that and tune into that. Uh, and you yourself, as you said, have labeled this case a bombshell. Uh, and I, I know I've heard you present before where you've read the opening of the opinion by Justice Gorsuch because it is so powerful. So I'm going to briefly share those, those words. Uh, that Justice Gorsuch uh, delivered in his opinion for the Supreme Court. On the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. In exchange for ceding, quote, all their land east of the Mississippi River, end quote, the U.S. government agreed by treaty that, quote, the Creek country west of the Mississippi shall be solemnly guaranteed to the Creek Indians, end quote. And that's the 1832 treaty. Both parties settled on boundary lines for a new and, quote, permanent home to the whole Creek nation, end quote, located in what is now Oklahoma. The government further promised that, quote, no state or territory shall ever have a right to pass laws for the government of such Indians, but they shall be allowed to govern themselves, end quote. Today, we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. Uh, so very powerful opinion, and uh, thank you for all of your work on this. And I will turn this over to Eric. Yeah, let's bring in uh, Addie Rolnick into the discussion. Uh, Professor Rolnick, what are your thoughts on McGirt and its implications for the future, and, and in particular with regards to criminal justice 
in tribal jurisdictions. Thank you, Eric and Valina, for having me here. Uh, and thank you for devoting a show to tribal criminal jurisdiction, um, which is, I think, what we want to focus on. So I want to connect some of the background that Professor Miller gave to the question uh, and the future of criminal jurisdiction. So the reason McGirt is a case about how to interpret treaties, what they mean, and how the court is going to read what happened historically against the promises made in treaties. And it's a case about the rules for how we determine what counts as Indian country today. But the question came up in McGirt because of a crime. And so a crime was committed. And the question that needed to be answered was who has jurisdiction over this crime, which required the court to figure out whether or not it was still Indian country. And that's the reason that's a big question is because most of the time, criminal power is state power. The federal government exercises some pretty limited criminal jurisdiction, but most crimes are prosecuted in state court. Uh, except in Indian country, because it's considered to be federal and tribal land, the, mostly um, the jurisdiction is federal and tribal over regular old crimes. So not just special federal crimes, but, but standard crimes. Uh, and states have uh, very limited criminal power, and it varies depending on where you are, but pretty limited criminal power in Indian country. So when you have a crime happening, the question is, we got to figure out if this is Indian country because the rules are really different for who can prosecute. So in McGirt, initially, the a lot of the discussion about that case had to do with state versus federal jurisdiction. So this was a, a serious crime. Uh, and so all of the discussion in the case uh, and around it originally was, well, will the state prosecute this or will it go to federal court? Or, you know, what's going to happen once this case is decided? Will there be a bunch of crimes that then have to go to federal court? Are there enough resources in federal court? What will that mean? Uh, but some of the discussion has shifted. There's another piece that is important, which is that tribes also have jurisdiction in Indian country. So it's federal and tribal jurisdiction. And in general, tribes have jurisdiction to prosecute uh, where the defendants are Indian people, pretty much any crime. Uh, and so sometimes that jurisdiction is concurrent with the federal government, uh, but sometimes it's just the tribes who are uh, exercising jurisdiction and the state has no power over Indian defendants. So what that means for the tribes affected by the McGirt decision is that suddenly a lot of cases that were going to state court suddenly are going to either tribal or federal court. And in practice, most of those are going to tribal court. So, so the federal government gets to decide what it wants to pursue. The tribe cannot force the federal prosecutors to go after any particular case. And particularly for low level offenses, those are mostly falling to the tribe. So one of the things that that has meant for tribes affected by the decision is suddenly having to kind of scramble to remake their criminal and their juvenile delinquency courts to accommodate all these new cases that are under their jurisdiction now instead of under the state's jurisdiction. Professor Rolnick, if, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to do both a, little, a question that looks backwards and, and then a question that looks forward. The backward question is, could you provide us a little bit of background on the history of criminal jurisdiction in, in tribal uh, lands, particularly given, let's say, maybe 120 years ago or so, and the what's been called this kind of infantilizing of criminal justice in, uh, in tribal courts. Could you give us a kind of a summary of that and your thoughts? So I'll try to do it briefly. Feel free to ask follow-up questions. So historically, tribes are governments and historically exercised 
what we would today call criminal jurisdiction, you know, the jurisdiction to deal with people who were breaking laws uh, and to punish them or react in whatever way uh, the, the government felt like was appropriate. So that might include something like restitution and it might include something like punishment. It could include death. It could include expelling people from territory. But historically, these are governments who would exercise that power in their territory. And the Supreme Court long ago recognized that tribes had that power in their territory. Um, there is a long history of the federal government exercising that power as well. So the federal government viewed itself in many ways as a kind of a bulwark between the states and the tribes. So this is not state territory, it's tribal territory, crimes are the tribe's business, but also the federal government sometimes comes in and prosecutes crimes. Initially, mostly um, crimes that had to, what, are, what we might call interracial crimes. So crimes that had to do with between the settlers and the Indians, but the federal government left um, what is what we would call internal criminal jurisdiction. So crimes committed by people who were part of the tribe, just to the tribe. They, for a long time, the federal government didn't get involved in that. Um, and then with passage of a law called the Major Crimes Act, the federal government for the first time kind of reached its hand into the internal workings of tribes and said, we're also gonna pass a law giving us jurisdiction over crimes committed by your own people against your own people. So those are not things that have to do with the relations between the states and the tribes, but we're gonna get involved in this. And some of that was premised on the Indian agents uh, who were working at the time were kind of asking for this jurisdiction. And a lot of it was premised on this idea. It's both an expansion of federal power and an undermining of what tribes were doing in terms of their justice systems. So the idea was that uh, tribes were not really sufficiently punitive. So they were not handling lawbreaking in their territory in a way that was good enough for the U.S. government. So federal jurisdiction was supposed to to make sure that that was happening, which was more satisfying to the Indian agents and to the settlers. So the Major Crimes Act is this big incursion into the tribe's right to self-govern, but all along the understanding is the state really has no role here. So where it has to do with non-Indians, the federal government might be involved. Where it's just about Indians, the tribe is really in charge. And then there's this layer of uh, federal involvement with the Major Crimes Act and the state really stays out of it. Um, so that's sort of the general historical context um, and the story of the federal government trying to come in and start to undermine tribal systems. Fast forward uh, many decades uh, and you get, there's a, there's a lot more detail in the history here in terms of how the federal government has treated tribes and tried to undermine tribal governments and tribal laws, but you get some some confusion and not a lot of investment in tribal justice systems and a lot of uh, trying to kind of refashion them. And so as a consequence for a long time, you don't get a ton of efforts of tribes to do things like exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. And then as you fast forward, uh, the 60s and the 70s, you start to see more tribes dealing with non-Indians in their territory who are committing crimes uh, and starting to be concerned with this and starting to actually exercise their power to prosecute those people. And then the Supreme Court comes in in a decision called Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian tribe and says, wait a minute, uh, we don't see a lot of evidence that you have historically prosecuted non-Indians. And so we don't think you have that power anymore. So just because you even though we've never seen Congress take it away from you, we, we think that as part of your status as a dependent sovereign, um, you've lost that part of sovereignty. So you can't prosecute non-Indians. So that leaves tribes in a position where they're, uh, this is no other sovereign has uh, this kind of limitation where they are not allowed to actually prosecute all the crimes in their territory. 
they're they're explicitly prohibited from prosecuting anything committed by a non-Indian, even if they live there, even if they're involved in the community. Um, and so the court draws that sort of hard line. So I wanna give it to Professor Miller for a minute um, because I think he has something to add. Uh, and then there's a, there's a bit more story going forward. Yeah, Professor Miller, if you'd like to chime in, please. Well, as any culture and any people, Indian tribes and Indian cultures have governed themselves for centuries, for thousands of years, as Professor Rolnick mentioned. Tribes, some tribes even uh, practiced capital punishment. Many tribes had what are called whip masters who would dish out corporal punishment. And many tribes also exercised banishment from people who would not follow the norms of that community, the laws of that community, they would be banished. Uh, especially the Northern Cheyenne people are famous for this. And, and this was almost considered to be a death sentence if you and your family were banished from the tribal group. So criminal jurisdiction has been something that tribal governments have exercised for millennia. So when the United States shows up on the scene, what are the promises? What's the involvement of the United States? Again, as Professor Rolnick says, the United States got oh, never really got involved in Indian on Indian crime. This was Indian country. The feds left this to tribal governments and they handled their own affairs. But the Congress had promised through treaties for tribes to protect them from lawless whites. And so you have in 1790, Congress passes the first form of what today we call the Indian Country Crimes Act, in which the United States would prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians. So those were promises of treaty protection from lawless Americans. But again, as Professor Rolnick mentioned, you have non-Indians living on in Indian country, living on reservations, that number increases as let's call it an invasion as that occurs, and you have non-Indians criminally attacking non-Indians. Well, who could prosecute that? The federal government did not have jurisdiction under the forerunner of the Indian Country Crimes Act that I mentioned has been around literally since 1790 and was enacted pretty much as it is today in 1817. So the Supreme Court decided the McBratney case in 1881 and decided there was this vacuum of when a non-Indian commits a crime against another non-Indian in Indian country. And so the states would have that criminal jurisdiction. So again, as Professor Rolnick said, state jurisdiction in Indian country was almost non-existent except for this vacuum filling jurisdictional gap that the Supreme Court covered in McBratney in 1881. The Supreme Court has repeated that holding in 1896 and I believe the third time in 1946. So, the Supreme Court tried to create criminal law to cover this unique situation of nations within nations. As already mentioned, the N. Ray Crow Dog in 1883, the Supreme Court decided that the feds had no criminal jurisdiction over an Indian on Indian crime in Indian country. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was outraged. Maybe a lot of Americans were outraged. I believe the Crow Dog case made headlines around the country. And so two years, you get the Major Crimes Act enacted that, again, Professor Rolnick has already mentioned. This is the law that was at issue in McGirt v. Oklahoma itself, whether Oklahoma had jurisdiction over an Indian committing a crime in what's now Indian country defined under the Major Crimes Act. The Supreme Court told Oklahoma they did not have that jurisdiction. And I want to emphasize to you all that this was no surprise. The Supreme Court held in 1926 in the Ramsey case that Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction over an Indian on Indian crime because of the Major Crimes Act. 
So McGirt isn't even that much of a surprise for, for what happened. But again, as uh, Professor Rolnick said, Congress enacts the Major Crimes Act. Originally, it only covered seven specific crimes committed by an Indian person on a reservation or in Indian country, the definition I mentioned earlier. Congress has expanded the number, the type of laws. I've always said it's 15 laws now. I see there's one citation I found that claimed it's now as much as 30 laws. So the feds have more criminal jurisdiction in Indian country. And again, to repeat what Professor Rolnick said, McGirt has been a bombshell for all three governments. The federal government has found its criminal jurisdiction expand by leaps and bounds inside Oklahoma. The tribal nations have seen their criminal jurisdiction expand leaps and bounds over any Indian committing a crime within Indian country is subject to the criminal jurisdiction of the tribe. And the state, on the other hand, has seen an enormous restriction of its criminal jurisdiction in 19 million acres in eastern Oklahoma now. And it, it might help here. Thank you. So that, that is really helpful. It might help to just summarize again the criminal jurisdiction rules. There are always a lot um, to digest. Um, and I would emphasize what Professor Miller said, um, which is, you know, one of the things that's so striking about the McGirt decision is that effectively the court was saying, look, we, you know, we've got all these really old laws. There are rules about who should have jurisdiction in this case. And Oklahoma, you don't just get to act like you have jurisdiction for 100 years and then make it so. Uh, so there are these rules that we're going to stick to. And that was a really significant piece um, of McGirt's holding. Go ahead. Well, and let me add to that, because this is if there's any fault to be blamed here, the Wall Street Journal published an editorial on December the 4th. I, I was interviewed on the, the Michael Smirconis show. I called this legal analysis by hysteria. If you did not see this editorial, it's picking on a couple of cases that are really unusual looking and to the layperson, what? What did that do? And I'm afraid Oklahoma and a lot of commentators are waiting for horrific crimes to occur in reaction to McGirt, and then they can say, okay, Congress, you have to reverse, in essence, the McGirt decision. Professor Miller and Professor Rolnick, if I could bring in uh, General Nemo into our conversation here, because she's been one of the principal law enforcement officials of the Cherokee Nation for more than a dozen years uh, and manages a, a large staff of other attorneys. Uh, so General Nemo, um, obviously your agency, the Attorney General's Office of the Cherokee Nation, has had to address this increase in tribal prosecutions following McGirt. Uh, so what changes have you seen on the ground following McGirt? And there's been a few other cases that have been decided as well. One is Cooley that I hope we can discuss later. But what changes have you seen on the ground? So literally everything that we do at the nation either changed or increased exponentially. We, as, as we heard before, it was the summer of uh, 2019 when the McGirt decision came out. Um, our decision, which came from the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, applying the McGirt analysis to the Cherokee Reservation was Hogner, and that opinion was issued uh, March 11th of this year. So we are approximately nine months out from the uh, courts recognizing that the Cherokee Nation Reservation had never been disestablished. Now, we didn't wait until March 11th to start the expansion to our criminal justice system. Um, everyone, I think, that, that was watching this case, but particularly those attorneys for the other four of the tribes, four of the five tribes, 
Um, we all believed that whatever the decision was in McGirt would also apply to the other four of the five tribes. First of all, our individual legal histories were were very similar. Um, some of our treaty language was exactly the same. But more importantly, the arguments that the state of Oklahoma made as to the disestablishment of the reservations would have equally applied to all five tribes, the Allotment Acts, um, the um, Enabling Act, the formation of the state of Oklahoma. Those were the legal precedents that the state relied on, as well as this, um, as Professor Miller talked about, this um, kind of reliance interest that because the state of Oklahoma had been exercising jurisdiction illegally for 100 plus years, that they should be allowed to continue to do so. And um, I remember the day that the McGirt decision came out, we were all, you know, sitting at our desk refreshing. And those of us who had been, you know, we had several years leading up to this decision because the original case was not McGirt, it was Murphy. Similar issues, but a different crime um, that had gone to the Tenth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit held that the Muscogee Creek Reservation had never been disestablished. That case first went to the Supreme Court, and they did not issue an opinion because we had lost Justice Scalia, and everyone rightly believed that the court was split 4-4 on that, so they had to wait until they got another uh, case in front of them in which they could um, all participate so we were we were not surprised that the decision was applied the same to the other four of the five tribes. I remember when we were leading up and waiting on the decision, you know, our the the general comment uh, around Indian country, especially in Oklahoma, was that if the if the Supreme Court followed the law, the tribes would prevail. If the Supreme Court changed the law, we would not. And they followed the law. Um, they followed the uh, analysis and interpretation of whether or not Congress disestablishes reservations. But immediately, uh, I, I won't even say following, before we got the McGirt decision, um, the five tribes, as well as the state of Oklahoma, were working together um, to look at options on how we could cooperate, uh, specifically in the criminal justice arena. A, a lot of those steps we couldn't take until we, we got a final decision. But as far as Cherokee Nation, we had several months following the McGirt decision um, before the Hogner decision where we did things like updated our criminal codes. Um, our criminal codes were similar to those um, in the state of Oklahoma, but we hadn't um, updated very many of them um, in the last decade or so. Uh, we hired staff. Our office in the last year has gone from one full-time prosecutor to eight full-time prosecutors. We increased our support staff probably 200 percent. Um, we've hired, and this is only in the attorney general's office, we've hired investigators and probation officers. And we knew that we had to ramp up our capacity. Um, prior to our Hogner decision, we did not have a single year in the, I will say, modern history of the Cherokee Nation. And that includes about the last uh, 40 to 50 years that we filed more than 100 criminal cases. We are approaching 3,000 criminal cases in the nine months since we got the Hogner decision. So that gives you a real idea of the just exponential growth of the number of cases that we were prosecuting in the Cherokee Nation. Um, we've added police officers. We've added judges to our court, support staff in our court. We've added court locations. 
um, in the Cherokee Nation. We only have, um, at, at the moment, we have one court at our capital in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. We have a, a building that is going to be finished by the end of the year in Jay, Oklahoma, um, and we are working on another courthouse in uh, Claremore, Oklahoma. So we are expanding the location of our courts as well. Another thing that we have spent a lot of time on, and I I can go into detail on these if we have time, but, um, and this brings in the, the Cooley discussion somewhat, because even prior to McGirt, at Cherokee Nation, we had dozens of cross-deputization agreements with state and local law enforcement within the Cherokee Nation jurisdictional area, which would allow state and local police to enforce tribal law and would allow tribal police to enforce state and local law. So post-McGirt, we really made an effort to make sure that all of the state and local law enforcement in our reservation were part of those cross-step agreements so there were not gaps in police protection. Um, In addition, something that we've really focused on in the last several months are agreements with cities where they will process uh, Cherokee Nation traffic and other citation offenses in their city and municipal courts. And we are donating the vast majority of the fees and fines um, that are generated from those citations back to those cities and towns because we depend on, um, and in fact, most of the policing now on the Cherokee Nation Reservation is done by state and local police under these cross-step agreements. So we know that they depend on, and many police departments depend on, um, income generated from um, especially things like traffic tickets and citations to help support their police departments. And we have donated those fees back to those towns so they can continue to provide those policing services, not only for non-Indians, but for our, our citizens as well. You know, the one thing there have been a emotional politics in the state of Oklahoma following the McGirt decision. And those who seek to, I think, destroy tribal sovereignty talk about how devastating this decision has been to local communities and on law enforcement and criminal justice. But what we also know is, you know, I'm a Cherokee citizen, but I'm also an Oklahoma citizen. I live in Oklahoma. Um, All of us that work for tribes, our law enforcement, our our prosecutors, our tribal leaders, these are our communities and our homes, too. And we also care about public safety. And we have repeatedly heard uh, the governor of our state say, you know, this is the the biggest issue impacting Oklahoma. But I also know that, you know, I get up and load my kids in the car and drive them to school every morning and drop them off. And we shop and we eat out and we go to parks. And if you ask an average, you know, on the street Oklahoman, whether they're an Indian or not, the impact of McGirt, I think that people outside or people that just follow this in the media would probably be really surprised to hear that most people don't think that their daily life has changed. The difference is if you're an Indian on the Cherokee Nation Reservation, you get a speeding ticket, then you're going to go to tribal court instead of state court. Or if a serious crime is committed, you're going to be prosecuted by the tribe or the federal government instead of the state government. But other than those people who are being prosecuted in court, either for minor or serious crimes, I don't think that it has had a tremendous impact on the everyday lives of Oklahomans. And I think a big reason that is, is because all of the effort that the tribes have put in 
to the cooperative relationships with uh, local and state agencies. Professor Rolnick, I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, everything that General Nemo just shared. And I wanted to ask about uh, juvenile justice, uh, since you are an expert in the juvenile justice arena, if you think there's been any impact on uh, Native American youth in juvenile justice systems. Yes, and do you want me to bring in Cooley? Yes, please. Okay, so uh, so I just it might help to back up several steps because um, I really love what Attorney General Nemo is saying is is telling us exactly how this is unfurling in real time and often I think the coverage of these issues makes it seem like it's going to go in a very different way um, and and really in many ways the impact is not that much but I I think so. It's hard to summarize the rules of criminal jurisdiction. I'm going to try to do it again in a simple way because Cooley comes into this discussion um, to try to explain the real impact is on either native people who will now be prosecuted in different courts and mostly on those courts and those police officers and how that jurisdiction has changed. So in general, in Indian country, so outside Indian country, it's just state jurisdiction for the most part, unless it's a special kind of federal crime. In Indian country, it's what is called a jurisdictional maze or a jurisdictional web. Uh, so you have, if it's, as Professor Miller said, two non-Indians and no Indian people involved, that's under state jurisdiction. Um, there is a different situation in states affected by public law 280, which is not Oklahoma. So I do wanna mention that state jurisdiction looks different in some other places, but here talking about the context of McGirt, um, we're looking at just that limited state jurisdiction for only non-Indians being involved. If you've got Indian people involved, it can look a few different ways. So if it is a non-Indian person who's the defendant who does something to a victim who's an Indian, those cases only go to federal court. So because of the Oliphant decision, the tribes do not have jurisdiction to prosecute those non-Indians, but Indians are involved, so it goes to federal court. Uh, if it's an Indian defendant, then for the most part, that goes to tribal court. So tribes have jurisdiction over Indians who commit crimes against other Indians, who commit victimless crimes, who commit crimes against non-Indians. If a non-Indian is involved, or if it's a serious crime where the victim is an Indian, then it may also go to federal court. But for the low level, like what I would call low level crimes, so anything that's not covered by the Major Crimes Act, uh, those things, if the defendant is an Indian and the victim is an Indian, they can only go to tribal court. So there is concurrent tribal jurisdiction over anything involving an Indian defendant. Uh, and there is sole tribal jurisdiction over anything that's not a major crime involving an Indian defendant and an Indian victim. So there's a big chunk of types of offenses. And this is important for juvenile delinquency because a good amount of juvenile delinquency offenses are not gonna be considered major crimes. Uh, and so a lot of what kids are coming into court for is these low level crimes. So those are not crimes where the federal government even has jurisdiction if there's two Indian people involved. And so you've got tribal courts suddenly with expanded jurisdiction because McGirt doesn't change the rules of criminal jurisdiction. It just says this land is Indian country. So those rules apply. So a, a bunch of tribal courts sort of stopping and having to accommodate much larger caseloads, as the attorney general said, um, very quickly. Um, and depending on the relationship with the state, 
maybe unceremoniously, right? So the question is, the people who are already in state court, do they just get dumped on the tribal court immediately? Um, or is there some kind of way in which we can make this more gentle? So the tribes are sort of receiving a bunch of new cases. And that's happened in the juvenile courts as well. So that wasn't the focus. The focus was really on major crimes of the McGirt decision. But their juvenile delinquency courts are going to be governed by the same rules. So tribes where they had very limited jurisdiction, maybe over their kids, um, suddenly are potentially processing a lot more cases. So what I think is interesting about that and and potentially quite positive but also really tough for tribes is that's a chance like if you have to go back and revise your criminal code and revise your delinquency code and really think about taking on more cases that's a moment in which the tribal government should be able to say well what do we want to do with this right so if we have jurisdiction over all these cases how do we want to run this court um what do we want it to look like do we want it to be just like oklahoma did or just like the federal government did, or are there other things that we wanna bring in? Particularly for delinquency, do we wanna build a bunch more prisons to put the kids in, or do we wanna to try to think of other kinds of programs? So there is a moment in which in expanding their jurisdiction, tribes are able to ask those questions. What do they wanna do about the availability of counsel for defendants? Um, sometimes it's required, sometimes it's not under federal law, but the tribe has choices to make about that. So. The tribes affected by McGirt are in this moment of being able to make those decisions, but really quickly because they've got to be able to accommodate this massive caseload. So I think it's a it's a great but really hard position to be in. It's also the position that a lot of tribes were in when the uh, when Congress passed laws allowing for limited prosecution of non-Indians uh, for domestic violence crimes. The tribes often had to go in and change their laws to accommodate that. And when they did that, they had a chance to rethink some other aspects of their criminal laws as well. So that's been happening for tribes uh, in different moments. To, to just explain where Cooley fits in. So Cooley is a case. So the rules I told you apply to criminal cases. And then there's a whole other set of rules that apply to civil. Uh, and you don't have to do this distinction outside Indian country in the same way. And then there's these things that we're not sure what they are. So they probably are part of the criminal system. They're decisions like uh, stopping and detaining people and questioning them uh, when you're the police or hot pursuit or extradition. So that's not a case in which you're prosecuting someone, which is standard criminal jurisdiction, but it's part of your criminal system. Uh, and those questions are, for the most part, were kind of unanswered by the courts. So we don't exactly have a clear, or we didn't have a clear answer from the Supreme Court about what tribal police officers were able to do in these sort of ancillary criminal jurisdiction situations, we knew that they didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute, but what could they do with non-Indians? So cross-deputization agreements that the attorney general mentioned were a big way to handle that. So if you just make sure that you've all got a, a, an agreement where you're deputized to enforce each other's laws, it kind of doesn't matter who you are. But absent those agreements, there really was a question of whether tribal police could do anything. So Cooley is a case in which the Supreme Court said, yes, in fact, uh, tribes, tribal police, even if they can't prosecute a non-Indian, if they find a non-Indian, in that case, sort of driving uh, apparently it turned out high on meth and with a bunch of weapons and stopped by the side of the road in the reservation, even if they can't prosecute that person, can they stop them, search them and detain them in order for the correct authorities to come in and the Supreme Court said yes. Um, so that was really important in potentially expanding uh, the scope of what tribal criminal departments can do. That's, that's great. That's a great segue to our uh, last set of questions where I'd like to ask about the future a prognostication, beginning with uh, Professor Miller. Professor Miller, what do you see lying ahead as a consequence of McGirt and the cases that follow? Uh, what happens next? 
What do you think the tribes want? What do you think should be done? Well, first off, Oklahoma has filed, I believe, 30 cert petitions with the United States Supreme Court to reverse McGirt. So I sit here a little worried with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and Amy Coney Barrett on the court. We don't know her Indian law jurisprudence. She probably had none. I don't know if she has any experience in Indian law. I think zero. Indian tribes were happy that Justice Gorsuch was appointed to the court because they thought, well, here's a judge from the Tenth Circuit from the West. During his 10 years on the Tenth Circuit, I believe he sat on over 42 Indian law cases. And I, by memory, I think he wrote about 18 opinions in those cases. So most Indian nations were pretty encouraged to see him on the court. So it's intriguing that since he's been on the court, tribes have won six of their last six Supreme Court cases which before that we were losing 80 to 90% of our cases in front of the Supreme Court. So he's made a pretty dramatic difference. What will happen now with Justice Barrett? So there's the 30 petitions that Oklahoma has filed. One of them is very, I think the court has to address, is McGirt retroactive? I've looked only a little bit at the case law on this. Uh, it probably should be. And if that's the case, it will implicate more case, more criminal convictions from the past. And so that takes me to, I want to get back to Oklahoma's hysteria and Attorney General Nemo's comments. These attorneys to the Supreme Court argued that over 3,000 Oklahoma prisoners would have to be released and would get out of prison. Governor Stitt of Oklahoma has hinted, he's very careful in how he says this, but he hinted in a news program I saw that 76,000 prisoners in Oklahoma or maybe Indian, and then he worded it very carefully, but yeah, they might all get out of jail. So I just want you to, so he, that's the hysteria I mentioned earlier. And so, but I want you to, to point out to you an article by Voice of America in July of 2021, just five months ago. The Department of Corrections reported to the reporter that wrote the article that 129 Oklahoma convicts had been released and 57 of them had been released to the street. But that means that 72 of them had been immediately arrested by either the federal government or the tribal governments and prosecuted. Mr. McGurr himself was quickly prosecuted and convicted. And the case that Attorney General Nemo mentioned that started this from the 10th Circuit, the Murphy case, Mr. Murphy was also immediately arrested. He never went free and has been re-prosecuted. So one point I'd like to make about how did 57 convicts get released to the street? Well, I have only uh, secondhand knowledge on this, but Oklahoma has not been doing a terrific job of coordinating with the federal and the tribal authorities and, and arranging for these people to be immediately rearrested as they're released from state custody. So I want to reemphasize something that Justice Nemo said that the tribes in Oklahoma have long been doing. And the Supreme Court in McGirt said, this looks like the future. And Justice Nemo just reiterated that cross-deputization agreements, cooperation, no one wants criminal people to fall through, uh, fall through the cracks. And the Cooley case implicates this. I thought we would win the Cooley case primarily based on security issues, public safety. If a tribal police officer stops someone who is clearly 
in breach of the law? Do they have to let them drive down the road while, as Professor Rolnick mentioned, they're high on methamphetamine or something? And the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing, which surprised me a little. And it also relied on a principle of Indian law from the civil law arena, which is the first time the Supreme Court has ever upheld tribal sovereignty using that principle from the Montana case from 1981. So they borrowed this civil law uh, principle to talk about public safety and the need for public security. So exactly what Attorney General Nemo said, the average Oklahoman doesn't even know the McGirt case. They've not seen one bit of change, I believe. I've read somewhere that barely 20% of Oklahomans in a poll even knew about McGirt. So even though the governor and the attorney general are trying to say it's the end of the world, it has not been. And if these governments can cooperate and continue uh, the cross-deputization agreements that uh, Attorney General Nemo is talking about, I think this can work out pretty smoothly. Same question for you, uh, General Nemo. What do you see lying ahead? What happens next? What do the tribes want in this uh, uh, new world of, of uh, criminal justice jurisdiction in uh, tribal lands? What do you think should be done? I think that the thing that we want the most right now that is lacking is cooperation from the state. And I want to be clear that it's not everyone. We have folks on the local level, whether they be county sheriffs, district attorneys, agency employees, who are being very, very cooperative with the tribes. You know, those folks who are tasked with doing that work all day, every day on the ground. It is the political leadership of the state that is um, refusing to, not only are they refusing to cooperate, they're refusing to even, you know, have a conversation with the tribes. And going forward, assuming that there's no major change to the McGirt decision, we have to have cooperation from the state. We all want that. Again, we these are our homes, our communities, and we want, you know, public safety. I think that Part of the, um, as Professor Miller mentioned, there are dozens of cert petitions in front of the Supreme Court. Those cases have all been set on the uh, January 7th uh, conference for the Supreme Court. So we should know quickly after the first of the year whether or not the court is even going to hear um, any of these McGirt challenges. There's there's kind of three groups. Um, there's the, the state's first position, simply McGirt was wrong, overturn it. Um, the state is also arguing that they have concurrent jurisdiction over non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians on Indian country. Um, and then the retroactivity issue, which that is actually on cert petition from defendants who um, the court was found that McGirt did not apply to them and their state court convictions could not be dismissed because McGirt was not retroactive. So in the coming year, those big three questions um, will work their way through or not um, the Supreme Court, but we should have some answers. So I, I think we still have a bit of time of uncertainty, but we have to have cooperation with the state. I mean, I think that the primary goals for the tribes internally are, you know, to continue to expand our capacity, you know, look at, are, are there better ways that we can do things? Um, uh, professors talked earlier about, you know, tribal justice didn't historically look the same as state or federal justice, and it doesn't have to today. 
Um, Oklahoma is the world record holder for per capita incarceration of women. We put more women in prison per capita in this state than anywhere in the entire world. That's not a statistic that we want to be a leader in. So we can, you know, tribes can take this opportunity to look at alternatives to incarceration and other type of restorative justice type um, criminal justice statutes and responses to crime. Um, Again, I think we will continue to look to build partnerships with both, um, you know, state and federal agencies and, and individuals there. Um, One of the other things, you know, I mentioned the work that we're doing. One of the other things that we've done, which is an example, um, you know, as far as I know, none of the none of the tribes are out building prisons right now, because even if we do need to incarcerate people, we don't have more people as a result of McGirt that need to be in jail. It's a question of where. So all of the tribes are contracted with county jail facilities. And when we send someone to jail, they go to the county jail and we pay them a set amount per day to house our inmates. And that's an example of working together because we don't need more jail beds in the state. We just need an allocation of whose responsibility they are and who's paying for them. So that's, um, you know, that's what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. The bigger question, which is not the subject of this podcast, but it's obviously kind of the next steps. And it's the the red herring that the state of Oklahoma keeps talking about the expansion into the civil area because McGirt was a criminal case and the Major Crimes Act is a criminal law. But any of us that do any work in Indian law understand that if an area is a reservation or even the definition of Indian country under the Major Crimes Act, there are other federal statutes that refer to that definition. As far as we know, a court's never held that a tribe has a reservation for one purpose and not for other purposes. So moving forward, um, because we have, you know, I think we've got a handle for sure on the the criminal aspects of this. It is, again, a matter of continuing um, Uh, agreements with state and local agencies, as well as expanding our own capacity. But the big question in the coming years for the tribes and states will be um, what we do about civil jurisdiction. And a lot of those questions we already know the answer to. We know the answer to the question of whether or not the state can collect income taxes from a tribal citizen who is earning income on their reservation. The answer is no. Um, is the state going to continue to fight that? Or are they going to seek, you know, that that's something that can be compacted? Are tribes willing after the political decisions that have been taken by the states to even talk about revenue sharing when it comes to taxation and regulation and land management? Something that has recently occurred just literally this week, the Cherokee and the Choctaw Nation for several years have had hunting and fishing compacts with the state of Oklahoma, where we actually purchased hunting and fishing licenses at discounted rates um, for our citizens from the state of Oklahoma. And the governor has refused to renew those contracts. So now um, the tribes are going to rely on their own treaty rights um, to pro- for their citizens to hunt and fish on, on tribal lands. And it has um, kind of upset the the standard way that we uh, managed fish and wildlife resources in this state. And what does that look like going forward? And what are the goals of the tribes in the state? Um, you know, I know speaking for my tribe that we have, we have and are a leader in those areas and we will continue to be. And um, again, I, you know, I think I, I sound like a broken, broken record here because I said it over and over. Um, 
I think McGirt can be a win and an opportunity for both the state and tribe if the state's willing to cooperate. But but they have to be willing to work with tribes to to recognize the sovereignty of tribes, to recognize our authority over our land and our members. Um, and I know that the leadership of Cherokee Nation is is going to continue to work towards that goal. Professor Rolnick, same question to you. What does the future hold in this area? Obviously, I can't say for sure what it holds. Um, and I think there are a lot of questions about uh, how McGirt will be interpreted in the civil context that are going to be really important. And I can't say what tribes think is important because there are hundreds of them affected by these laws and they probably all want different things and have different priorities. But I want to focus on, we've been talking about the criminal power of tribes. And that's kind of, that's what, what we've been thinking about and thinking about thinking of it as a good thing um, to expand the authority of tribal governments to exercise criminal jurisdiction. And that's because tribes are alone among sovereigns in having their criminal power severely curtailed. And I don't want to overstate this, but I guess I would say in this century, um, we have seen a series of court decisions and statutes that have either solidified or expanded um, the jurisdiction of tribes uh, in their criminal courts. Um, So it's definitely not Uh, It's still in need of more expansion and more solidifying, um, but we have seen, I think, a a trend away from taking jurisdiction away and more toward restoring it. And so in that way, McGirt and Cooley are kind of the latest in a line of of statutes and cases that do that. So with greater authority comes, I would argue, greater responsibility, which is to say we can think about, you know, we're, we're in year two, at least, of a pretty significant national conversation about incarceration and criminal justice and policing. And so in Cooley, we had this question about whether police officers can sort of do an initial stop and a search. And we know from sort of other conversations that the authority of police officers to stop and do a search is sometimes a real problem in other jurisdictions. And so now if you've got a if you've got a case underscoring the power of tribal police to do that, well, that's good from the perspective of thinking about law and order and thinking about sovereignty. Um, Uh, from the perspective of tribal governments, but it also means that it's going to fall to tribal governments to think about how they're going to run those systems. So to think about questions like, how how is police power going to be limited? How will police be held accountable if they misbehave? How will they be trained? Um, Will there be ways uh, to, to hold them accountable if they brutalize people during those stops? Uh, and so not, I'm not talking about the question of exceeding jurisdiction and going to federal court. I'm talking about a different question. Tribes have an opportunity to think about defendants' rights. So I mentioned the laws that expanded uh, jurisdiction over non-Indians. Um, and there's also a law that uh, allows tribes to impose longer prison sentences, uh, the Tribal Law and Order Act and the Violence Against Women Act. And the first three tribes that, uh, that were implementing those laws Federal law told them they needed to provide defense attorneys only really for non-Indians who faced prison time and Indians who faced longer prison sentences. And those tribes, for the most part, took a look at their laws and said, that's ridiculous. We're going to provide defense attorneys for everybody. And I know that some of the tribes affected by the McGirt decision are thinking about, for example, should they provide defense attorneys for juveniles? That's not necessarily required under federal law. So they can think about what to do with policing. They can think about what to do with defendants' rights in court. And then as Attorney General Nemo mentioned, I think the third question is really detention and incarceration. So if you're running a criminal system um, and you've got the power to do it and you've got a bunch of people coming under your authority, there's a lot of decisions, a lot of freedom 
uh, to make decisions about what to do and how to punish or whether to punish and for what kinds of crimes, how to define those crimes. And certainly incarceration is probably on the menu, particularly for really serious adult crimes for many tribes. Uh, but tribes have a moment in which they can reevaluate uh, how much they want incarceration to be a part of their systems. And we've seen, I think, that the most at the juvenile level, because it's kind of easier to think about children committing relatively less serious crimes as being candidates for sort of not using incarceration at all. And so I think we're seeing some tribes kind of push in the direction away from incarceration. And again, that question has to do with resources. When you're expanding your criminal system, your police force, uh, and your the number of people that are coming into your courts, where do you put that money, right? Are you going to put it into truancy courts that the kids are going to go to where they're they're dealing with their peers and it's sort of a not a punitive system? Are you going to put it into a restorative program or are you going to try to get a grant to build another prison? So I think we're seeing, um, and I hope we see more of tribes really asking hard questions about how to be responsible about exercising that power. Well, that brings us to the end of our time today. We want to thank our guests for a really terrific discussion. Professor Addie Rolnick, of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas' William S. Boyd School of Law, Professor Bob Miller of Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and General Chrissy Nemo, Deputy Attorney General of the Cherokee Nation. Thanks also to my co-host, Felina Beatty, and our producer, Amina Ketchen Kamel. This podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been measured justice.